This is our last lesson in this authentic series that I wanted to do James 1 with you and talking about how to have a real faith, a real faith particularly uh, in the face of trials. James has uh, instructed us heavily about how to handle uh, trials in this first chapter. He's told us that uh, trials are a, a testing of our faith, which is intended to produce a steadfastness. And in that steadfastness, if we allow it to do its work in us, it will make us mature and complete, lacking nothing. He's further told us that trials are exposing things about our character as well as about our faith. And it exposes the, the evil desires that are in us that give birth to sin and that sin then gives birth to death. He's also told us that trials show us the the, the moral filth and the evil overflow of our hearts. And so there have been a number of pictures about how trials are truly showing us a lot about who we are and about our character and is intended to show us our weaknesses, show us where there needs to be transformation and change. Uh, and that's what brings this first chapter to its, its grand conclusion. You will notice in James 1, and in verse 22, that James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. And what you have right out of the gate here is, is I think James asking an important question for us to consider. So are we going to do something about what we have learned in the trial or are we going to do absolutely nothing at all? The, the, the whole chapter has been saying that God is trying to mature us and make us complete so that we are lacking nothing. That it's revealing all kinds of things about who we are. It reveals deep what's in the heart and reveals those desires and those intentions. And so as you come to the end of this chapter, it is a very important question to ask is, so what will you do with the trial? Will you allow the trial to, to teach you? Or will you just simply hear it only? And I think that's particularly interesting because what you see is that next level faith is being described as us doing something about what we have learned. That we have learned something about God. We have learned something through his teaching. We have learned something through the trial. And it is so easy to go through a trial and go through a difficulty and, and ultimately not do anything about it. You've passed through it all and you come out onto the other side and then ultimately not do anything about what has happened. You've seen these weaknesses, you've seen these problems, or you've heard the word of God and it has convicted you and it exposed a particular area in your life. And yet it is so easy to be able to just walk away from that and not do anything about it. I think that's one of our great temptations. And I want you to notice the illustration that James uses to explore why it is foolish for us to do something like that. In verse 23, you will notice that James then goes about saying, because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. And you have to appreciate the illustration that James uses because 
You read that and you get the sense of the foolishness or the silliness of it, of looking into a mirror, observing that there is a problem and then walking away and not doing anything about it. One of the things to notice is that the person observes the problem. It says they look in the mirror and they see, but then absolutely nothing happens. And I want you to think about what a silly thing to do. Can you imagine? You go to your mirror. You're getting ready in the morning and you see all kinds of problems and you walk off and go, all right, <laughs> there you go. Got my hair standing up. All right. Well, shirts on my button, right? Well, okay. And you see it, but you don't do anything about it. I think it is particularly interesting to, to think about this, this picture that, that's given to us because you, you might remember in those days, you don't have a mirror made of glass. You have mirrors that are made out of a, a polished metal. And so it requires some diligence to look at it, to be able to see clearly. You might remember even the Apostle Paul describes that that way in, in 1 Corinthians 13 about now seeing dimly. Well, it's because they didn't have mirrors like we have. Uh, you look dimly in it. And so here you are and you're looking at it and you go, well, that's fine. Everything seems all right. Even though you're, you're observing the problems, you pass it off. And that's what James ultimately describes here is the person who hears the word but doesn't do anything about it is as silly as a person looking into a mirror, observing a problem, but then not doing anything about it. And so James is trying to get us to see why would we do something like that? Because ultimately what we have done is we've made the word of God useless to our lives and we've made the trial useless to our lives. Here God is exposing things in us. He is correcting us and teaching us and trying to transform us. And we come and we, we, we hear the word or we see the problem and to do nothing about it is foolish. I would even... I would even put before you that I don't know that there's a more foolish, painful thing that we could do is to go through a, a painful trial, a traumatic experience, and go through those hardships where you have that difficulty and it exposes thing, things in your heart and exposes things in your life, and yet you don't do anything to change. You take a, a pain like a trial and then you compound it by learning nothing from it. You take the, the hardship of what you went through and then you do something that is most staggering. You'll notice the picture that's given here in verse 24. It says not only does he look at himself and go away, he's not doing anything about it. But did you notice the end of verse 24? He absolutely forgets everything seen in the mirror. It just, you know, I saw it and then you forget it. Not, not, not only is nothing done, but then there is absolutely no remembrance of the things that happened. The conviction is short-lived. And so either the word of God convicts for the moment, they see the problem, but then they don't do anything about it and they forget about what needs to be changed. They go through the trial, they go through the suffering, they go through the pain, and they see the problem, but they don't do anything about it. And so they forget what they have learned, forget what needed to be changed, and keep going just as they were. And so James is underscoring this, this problem is that we don't want to make the word of God useless. We don't want to make trials useless. 
We don't want to take these opportunities that God is using to convict our hearts and mature us and just simply go, well, yeah, I see that, but then walk away and forget exactly who we are. Now, his picture, I think, of the image of the solution is, is particularly fascinating. Verse 25, you'll notice that James says in verse 25, but the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. So I want us to talk about this this picture because he he describes here is this blessed person. And yet in this sentence, it is fully loaded with all of the things that the blessed person does. And I want you to notice the first thing that is described there in verse 25 is it says that this blessed person looks intently. Both looked, both saw the problem. But with the second person, there is a picture of seeing and then leaning in. The Arch English translations use the idea of intently, and some translations are, uh, have the idea of, of leans in a little closer. It's almost like a further inspection is going to happen. One person sees, observes the problem, walks away, forgets everything that they saw. The blessed person sees and then lingers and leans into it and looks a little more. In fact, you will notice that it even says that there in the middle of verse 25 where it says, and perseveres in it. They look, and then they keep looking, and they keep looking, and they keep looking. The trial has exposed the heart, and so they've come to the word of God, and they are looking and looking and looking. And they see more, and they see more, and they look even more intently. And so it's not just a cursory look. It's not just a a quick examination, but truly trying to take the word of God and allowing it to do something. They're looking closer at it because they know that there needs to be transformation. They know that there needs to be change. And so that is the picture that that is being given. We would look intently, persevere in it, looking for our weaknesses, looking for areas where we have flaws and, and problems. And I would say this, that's not a fun thing to do. It's not fun to read the word of God in a convicting way. It's much more fun to read it in a cursory way. It's much more fun to read it where you can point the finger at everybody else and go, I sure wish they would read this. It's a whole lot harder to read it and then lean into it a little bit more and look a little bit more intently at it. And let it rest on your mind a little while. And let it kind of marinate on your heart. That's the image that's being portrayed here. Is the idea of looking intently and keeping that look going on. And letting it come back to you again and again and again. And let it resonate in your life. Those who are blessed, James is telling us, don't take a cursory look. But they are willing to look and keep looking and keep looking and keep looking. And so there has to be some courage on our part because that hurts to be willing to keep looking and keep seeing those problems and keep observing those flaws. The second thing that he describes in verse 25 is the one who looks intently 
into the perfect law of freedom. I think this is maybe one of the most important things to talk about that's easy to pass over is notice why we would want to be intently looking into the word of God, why we would want that self-examination to happen, why we would want to look and look intently and keep looking and keep going. Notice what he calls the law of God. Think about what he calls God's word. He calls it freedom. He calls it liberty. This is the way to be set free. And sometimes what we think of is I'm looking at the word of God and it is going to trap me. And God's always trying to tell us the word of God's not trapping you. Sin is. Well, the word of God's going to constrain me. It's not trying to constrain you. Sin constrains you. God's law frees you to have the life that he wants you to live. So often we look at the word of God with a opposite perspective. Here's all the things I want to do, but uh, God, the cosmic killjoy, he's keeping me from doing all of those things. So, you know, it's the, the, the perfect law of constraint and pain. And notice that God doesn't describe it that way. Our perspective of why we want to look into the law and look at it intently is because this is what's going to set you free. This is going to give you the life that not only God wants you to have, but ultimately is the life that you want to have. This is what God is trying to give to us. And so we want to look into it because it's going to free us from our failures. It's going to free us from our sins. It's going to free us from our weaknesses. It's the thing that's going to get us out of those traps. It's going to get us out of those temptations. This is what we need to look at intently and see within us. And that's what James had told us earlier when he told us that, that here the, the temptations come from the desires that are within us. So the law of God is what we need to be able to overcome this. It's exposing this problem that we have. And now we're coming into the word of God and we're looking at it intently and we're seeing it as the tool for freedom from these desires, the freedom from these temptations, the freedom from these problems. So I think it is a beautiful point that James is making here that it's not just a throwaway statement to say, yeah, the perfect law of freedom. Think about how it rests in the chapter, how it's trying to show us that this is your freedom. Not temptations, not sin, not those passions of the flesh. This is the way to the life that God wants you to have. Number three, you will notice a, an emphasis that's made here. He says there in, that the blessed person is a doer who works. <laughs> you like the, the way to grind it into us twice. He doesn't just say you're a doer. Or does work. The doer who works. And really trying to drive at the picture of we are going to do something about it. Once our weakness has been exposed. And we slow down and lean into the law of freedom. Then we do something about what God has shown us. And that's probably the other hard part about what we're being told by God. Is the admitting. That we need to change. I think that's one of our big problems in our present society. Our culture says. You need to be the true you. 
you don't need to change. You need to just be who you are. No change. Just be you. And I want us to see that God does not tell us, look in the mirror, see all the flaws, and then be happy with your flaws. He doesn't say, stare into that thing, observe who you are, and just be content that that's who you are. And everybody just needs to accept that. No, he says, we need to change. What is so fascinating to me in thinking about this idea of change that James has is that's been such a pendulum swing in our culture. For the longest time, the culture has always been about you need to be a better you. I mean, magazines were all about how you could be the better you. Five steps to better this, ten steps to better that. We all needed to be the better us for decades upon decades, and now it's all stopped. And rather than being the better you, you just need to be the terrible you that you are. And everybody needs to be happy with that. That's where we're at now. And I want you to see that James goes, no, that's not the way to look at this. The the point is not to be the terrible you. The point is to see the terrible you and let the perfect law of freedom cause the transformation. Let the trials, let the temptations be the, the warning to you. I have flaws. I have weaknesses. I have problems. I have areas that need to be changed. Run to the law. Look intently at it, see the problem, and don't walk away and forget, but then do something about it. Be the doer who works. The blessed person hears and then does the work of transformation from the word of God. So that's the beautiful picture that's given. Now, I don't think we should stop in the paragraph because the next two verses, I think, then illustrate the idea of being the doer who works. And he uses two particular areas. Well, I think you could I could think I could successfully say three, three different areas of where we might be caught, where we think we are doers, but we're actually not the doers that God is looking for. Look at verse 26. Verse 26 says, If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Well, that's big. (laughs) So he says, let me talk about an area where we might be seeing the flaw, but not doing something about it. What a great illustration. Here's a great example. Not controlling what you say. And I want you to notice the the seriousness of what he says here, where he says, quite simply, if we do not control our tongues, then our activities for God are useless. Wow. Wow. You know, I'd like to think, well, if I have all of these things that I've done for God, you know, it's just my tongue, right? It's just words. And James says, no, no. If you don't control your tongue, all of the religious activity, all of those righteous deeds, everything that you are doing in your service to God, that religion 
is useless. And not only is it useless, as you know, James says, and we deceive ourselves again. Have you noticed how many times he says that in chapter one? He keeps saying we're lying to ourselves. And here's another way we do it. Oh, yeah, I'm a doer, but I don't control my tongue. And he says, whatever you think you're doing for God is absolutely of no value if the tongue is not controlled. James has a whole paragraph about that later. It's almost like chapter one is the the thesis to the whole book as he starts lightly touching on ideas. We won't do that in our series. But I want you to think about how he talks about the danger of the tongue, the importance of controlling the tongue, how it's described as being able to set the world on fire. We, we, we see that even today, the necessity to control the tongue and to realize if we are unwilling to think first, or let's use what he told us in chapter one, be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger, then our religion is useless. It doesn't matter to God. And so here is a picture of what doing would look like. He further gives an example of it in verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, I think there's an important question that needs to be asked here. Of all the things that God could describe what pure and undefiled religion would look like, why are these two groups selected? I mean, you could give a pretty long list of pure and undefiled religion before God looks like this. You could go and quote Micah about, you know, do justice and those kinds of things. You could talk about, you know, love God, love your neighbors yourself. Why does James zero in on caring for widows and orphans? And I think it's a little bit harder in our society to to understand what this would be getting at. But in their society, such an activity would be clear. Why you would have pure and undefiled religion being caring for widows and orphans is because those are the two groups in society that can do absolutely nothing back for you. There is no way for them to repay you. There is no way for them to have some kind of, oh, uh, you do something for me and I'll do something for you. I, I, I expect a favor from you down the road because I cared for you and did good for you. There is a picture here that is being presented by God that pure and undefiled religion does good because it's good. Not because you're going to get something back. Because it is the right thing to do. That's why you do it. Not because you think there's going to be some kind of, okay, I'm going to get something out of it. Now, you might think that's not a big deal, but be honest with yourself. Let's go stare at the mirror for a minute. We make those evaluations. Oh, should I do something? Well, I don't think they're ever going to do something back. I don't think that they'd be there for it. Or, well... They might help me out one day, so I guess I might help them right now. We can make those kinds of calculations where we decide if we're going to do what is right and good based on if it has a personal benefit. If there is something tangible we think we're going to get in return. And it might be as silly sometimes as thinking, 
Well, they should, you know, just get down on their hands and knees and kiss my feet saying thank you, you know. (laughs) They should just be so blown over by the care that I have given to them. And I think that's why James picks up these two particular groups. Is because this is a group that is ignored. This is a group that would be destitute. This would be a group that would be unable to give anything in return. And you would be willing to do something and step into that space and do for those who can't do anything back to you at all. Pure and undefiled religion walks into that space and says, I will do what is right because it is right, not because there is a personal benefit. And finally, you'll notice he also says pure and undefiled religion is keeping oneself unstained from the world. Let me just state the obvious because we probably need to say it the world stains the world does not take you in the right direction toward God its values its teachings its standards its declarations of what's right and wrong stains it doesn't push you toward God Pure and undefiled religion, it says there, keeps oneself unstained from the world. In essence, then, as the people of God, we need to be fighting for purity. Pure and undefiled religion says, I want to be pure. And I'm not going to allow myself to think it's acceptable to participate in the sins of the world. This would fit that hearing doing thing. It's one thing to hear. All right, well, here's all the things that we need to stay away from. And then we go right into it and do it anyway. We need to hear and do what God is saying about these things. What true and undefiled religion looks like. In fact, I want you to notice that. uh, Wow, why did I write James? This is going to be Isaiah on the screen. Isaiah 1, 16 and 17, not James 1, 16 and 17. Isaiah lumps the same thing together like James does. Here is Isaiah as he is condemning Israel for their sins. And here's what he says to do. Wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove evil deeds from your sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. It's like James is taking from Isaiah and saying, here's what pure and undefiled religion looks like. Cleanse yourselves. Stay out of the filth of the world. Do what is right because it is right. Pursue justice. Learn to do what is good. Stop doing evil and help those who are the oppressed, who can't do anything for themselves. Defend the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Care for them. It's the very same picture. That Isaiah gives us, let's just say Isaiah, Isaiah 1. <laughs> and I hope that we would have a, a, a sense of that idea, that the picture that, that, that God is trying to give to us is that being doers of the word is not just simply, yep, that is certainly exposing, see it in the mirror and then walk away. So two things for you tonight. As I combine the idea of trials from James 1 and the idea of looking into the law of God. Number one, please don't make your trials useless. A trial is exposing all of these areas within us where we need to change. You know, you think about the depths of what a trial does. 
One of the strongest things that a trial does is it exposes where you've put your hope because it's being taken out of your hands at that moment. Whatever you were resting on, whatever you were hoping in, whatever made you feel secure, whatever it was in your life that was holding things together and that gets turned on you, it exposes an area in us that our hope is not fully resting on God, but on having my job, having health, having family, having a degree of wealth, having... And whatever it is that's being taken away in that moment is saying, you had your hope there. So don't let the trial be useless. God is exposing these areas in us and showing us these areas that we need to change. So do not see the weakness and not do anything about it. Don't look in the mirror and forget who you are. And then instead, make your trials useful by and transforming by looking into that perfect law of freedom With great intent, persevere at looking at God's word and do something about what you see. Rather than being defensive, let me back up a second. I think it was last week I said, we talked about anger. And I said, now talk to people close to you and give them the ability and the freedom to tell you if you're an angry person. Right? I said, we've got to do that, right? Okay, are you an angry person? Because if you're an angry person and you don't tell them it's okay to tell you that, they're all going to say no because they're all afraid of you. So you've got to let them let you know. And when people expose these kinds of things of, yeah, anger's a problem, or yeah, that's, this is an issue, to not be defensive about it, but to go to the word of God and let it start transforming us. This is going to be the thing that's going to change us. We're going to look into it and let it tell us how to be changed, how to be different, and then live out ultimately what we are learning. And James uses three areas, controlling the tongue, caring for people who can't do anything back for you, keeping ourselves unstained from the world. And I want to end the lesson by just asking you to think about what do you see in the mirror? As God holds up his perfect law of liberty before your eyes. And he tries to get each of us to be real with our spiritual walk with him. What do you see in the mirror? And then what I would ask you to do is to do what James says. Don't walk away from looking at that. Keep looking at that. Look at it again. Think about it tomorrow the things that you are thinking about right now in your mind, the things that need to be changed and worked on. And stay looking at that tomorrow and then get into the word of God today and tomorrow and the next day and keep looking at that law of God and let it begin to transform us so that it can be the word that is humbly implanted in us. Remember that back in verse 21, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent Humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Let the word of God do its work, but you have to see the problem. And then you have to keep looking into the law of God to let it change you to be what God wants you to be. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father. Lord, it can be so easy 
to essentially spiritually coast in our walk with you. It can be easy to hear your words and think that we don't need to make any changes. It can be easy to succumb to temptations and not think that we need to make any changes. And we can have all kinds of weaknesses exposed in our trials and think we don't need to make changes. And so, Lord, I pray that you would truly open the eyes of our heart. And help us to see where we are falling short. Help us to see our character flaws. Help us to see when we're not using our tongues rightly. Help us to see when we're not caring for others as we ought. Help us to see when we're not being sacrificial as you've called us to be. Help us to see when we are not loving you above all else. Help us to see when we're not loving our neighbors as ourselves. Help us to see when we are becoming stained by the world. And Lord, I pray that as you open our eyes to those things, that you would give us a greater courage to come to your word and to let it deeply change us. Lord, we want to be changed into the the image of your son. And so, Lord, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for these failures. Forgive us for when we have been hearers only. And, Lord, we pray for transformation. We pray, Lord, that you would change our hearts, change our words, change our way of thinking, change our behaviors, so that we can be what you want us to be. Lord, help us to put away distractions that keep us from looking intently into your word. And help us to see that freedom is in what you've done for us and what you've revealed to us in your word and not in the world. And let us boldly be able to serve you in the days ahead, far more faithfully than we have in the past. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I pray then as we sing this invitation song, it'll just be a moment where you can... Look into the mirror. Think about your life. Think about what needs to be changed. And be convicted by the things that James has even said about what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. If we can help you in that, that's why we're here. We're here to help you in your walk with God, to help you turn away from sin, to follow him with all of your heart. And we can be happy to pray for you. We can do anything in, in an effort to help serve you in that way. We'd so certainly love to do that. You can come forward or let us know afterward while we stand and while we sing.